Welcome to the LexisNexis International Law Center podcast, a free service of the LexisNexis International Law Center. On this edition, Dan Harris of Harris and Moray in Seattle on eight things lawyers must know about China. www.lexisnexis.com/communities. The LexisNexis Law Centers, your community, your expertise, your starting point for the information you need for your practice area. lexisnexis.com/communities. The LexisNexis Law Centers. Dan Harris of Harris and Moray in Seattle focuses his practice in the areas of international law, international and domestic litigation, and international maritime law. Harris and Moray focuses on the small and medium-sized business that operates internationally and on the multinational company that needs specific assistance. They also operate ChinaLawBlog.com as a source of China legal and business information for clients and others interested in China. Here is Dan Harris. Chinese law is very different from U.S. law. Yet again and again, my firm gets called by lawyers who have gone way too far in China on behalf of their clients, based on the false assumption that there are certain aspects of law that are universal and apply in China when they don't. Today's talk will be on the eight most common mistakes we see. Usually made by lawyers when dealing with China. I'm going to limit my talk today to the basic legal aspects of doing business in China, and it is in that area where we see lawyers most often trip up. The first area I'm going to address is that of company formation. So many times, companies and lawyers do things before forming their company. That they should not be doing. Just by way of an example, in China, to form a company, one must provide a certain amount of minimum capital, and this minimum capital can vary depending on the company, the nature of the company, depending on the city. It can range from as little as thirteen thousand on up to twenty, thirty million. Well. We had a lawyer come to us once. He had his client actually on the phone, and they were asking about what it would cost in terms of minimum capital to form this client's company in China. And I told the lawyer, with the client on the line, that I thought it would probably be around two million dollars because the client was talking about building a factory. And the lawyer said, "Well, that's fine." Because we've already spent two million dollars in China towards the company, and I said, "Well, what did you spend it on?" And he said, "We spent it on equipment." And then he asked, "I assume that spending money on equipment can apply towards the minimum capital requirements." And I answered, "Yes. However, if you spent this money before you started the process of registering your company." The Chinese government will not recognize the two million that you have already spent. And for about the next ten minutes, the lawyer and the client were arguing with me about how ridiculous that law was and how it made no sense because they had actually spent two million in China and they should get credit for it, and they did not want to have to spend another two million that they didn't have. Well, the reality is that if they were going to form a company in China, they were now going to have to spend that additional two million because the two million they had already spent would not apply. 
The other area I see where lawyers and companies get ahead of themselves in company formation is that they spend huge amounts of money on marketing and location analysis before they ask whether their business is even legal in China. And there are a number of businesses that are not legal for foreigners to engage in in China. And the first question that should be asked before any money gets spent is whether your business is legal. The next area where I see big mistakes, and this is actually the newest of, of my list. I, I'm very glad this one came up because when I used to give this talk, it was the seven things that lawyers did wrong. And since eight is such a lucky number in China, I was always looking for an eighth. And the eighth one came in light of the Beijing Olympics. And the eighth one, well, not, and now I put it second because it's such a preliminary one, is ignoring China's immigration laws. It used to be the case that it was easy to get into China. You could just get a visa and go, and sometimes it would, you could get a visa in as little as two or three days. Well, that has really changed, and that has had huge impacts on many businesses. I have clients that had structured their businesses in China based on the assumption that a particular person or group of people could go over to China, spend 10 days every month over there training people, etc. Now all of a sudden, no one can go over there and their business in China is floundering. You have got to figure out how you're going to get your people into China before you make plans for what you're going to be doing in China, and you have to adjust your plans based on the immigration realities. One of the easiest things to do in terms of protecting your ability to get into China is to get what's called a Z visa, which is a work visa, and if you have a registered entity in China, getting the work visa is not all that difficult, and once you have it, it usually lasts for at least a year. Contracts. This is the third area where we see all kinds of mistakes. Entering into a contract with a Chinese company is not the same thing as entering into a contract with a company in Chicago. One of the things that we see a lot of is American companies thinking they're entering into a contract with a Chinese manufacturer, and then only after something goes wrong does the American company learn that they didn't really enter into a contract with the manufacturer. They entered into a contract with some guy or some company that is repping for the manufacturer. And we've had instances where we have called Chinese companies and said, you know, our client has a problem with this million-dollar order, and the Chinese company truthfully knows absolutely nothing about our client's order because our client never made the order to the Chinese manufacturer. They actually made it through a representative who gave the manufacturer insufficient information. And we've had instances where the Chinese rep failed to tell the Chinese manufacturer that our client needed the Christmas tree lights before December, things like that. You have got to make sure you know 
who you're dealing with. Um, we had another instance where a client of ours, well, a company that called us actually, had sent about 750000 over to China to have all sorts of toys made, and nothing was ever made. And when we looked into getting that money back, we learned that the money had gone to two guys who basically owned one computer between them and had not gone to the manufacturer. One other huge difference when doing business in China and overseas in general is you have got to be careful regarding where disputes are going to be handled and in what way. U.S. courts are almost never the solution when dealing with a Chinese company. The typical domestic U.S. lawyer thinks, let's force litigation in our home turf, make them come over here. Well, they're not going to come over here because the Chinese companies know that the Chinese courts will not enforce U.S. judgments. And so getting a judgment in the United States isn't going to do you any good. Now, the second knee-jerk reaction is to put in an arbitration provision, which usually does make sense internationally because arbitration awards tend to be enforced internationally. But a lot of times in China, that does not make sense because a lot of times what the American company should be more concerned about is not getting damages against the Chinese company, but being in a position to be able to stop the Chinese company from doing something that the American company doesn't want it to do, like maybe continuing to produce the American company's product and selling it in China without the American company's permission. And if you have an arbitration provision, it's going to be virtually impossible for you to get injunctive relief in China. And if you have a Chinese litigation provision, then you definitely have that possibility. Another mistake we see, again, in contracts is writing in the arbitration clause, calling for arbitration in China, but not specifying that the language of the arbitration should be in English. And under the Chinese arbitration rules, at least among the arbitration bodies of which I am familiar, if you do not specify the language of the arbitration, then the arbitration will be in Chinese. Another thing that must be done with Chinese contracts is you must be incredibly specific. Chinese courts, Chinese arbitrators, they do not tend to infer things from contracts. If you want your Christmas tree lights before Christmas, put a date in your contract. There's a story I always love to tell. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's a great story. And the story is that there was someone in Shanghai who had an apartment and he had a really nice office chair that broke. And he asked the landlord to fix the chair and the landlord went months and never fixed the chair. And then the American's lease was up on the apartment and the landlord was asking the American tenant to renew the lease. And the American tenant said, I will renew this lease if you get me a new chair. And the landlord said, okay. The American renewed the lease and the landlord brought in a $2 folding chair. And the American said, I should have known better. That is the kind of thing that can happen in China. You have got to be specific. Another area where we see problems is 
with molds. Americans assumed that, look, if I paid for the mold, it belongs to me. Well, you have got to put in your contract that the molds belong to you. Otherwise, the Chinese company will say that you, you may have paid for them, but the whole plan was for the Chinese company to keep them. Lastly, on contracts, Americans always or virtually always want the contract to be in English. A lot of times that's a mistake because if you're going to have to go to a Chinese court, and a lot of times you will, you will want your contract to be in Chinese because what Chinese courts do with foreign language contracts is translate them. You don't get to translate the contract, the Chinese court does. And what that means is if you have an English language contract and you find yourself in a Chinese court, you don't know what your contract says until the Chinese court has finished the translation, and their translation may be very different from what you thought the contract says. Intellectual property. American companies are actually getting better at this, but they still make a lot of mistakes. The key to intellectual property in China is to register early and often, and that's true of everything except patents. It is especially true with respect to trademarks. In China, unlike the United States, the first to register one's trademark gets it. It's the first to register, not the first to use. Now, since probably in the last two years, my firm has gotten four or five calls from American companies who have called us and said that a Chinese company has stolen their trademark and is not allowing the American company's product to leave China based on a claim that the Chinese company owns the trademark. And the Chinese company will have called the American company and said, we're willing to license you the trademark for, let's say, $250,000 a year. And the American companies call us up and say, you need to help us. These Chinese companies are trying to blackmail us. And they tend to get very angry when we explain to them that it's not really blackmail, that the reality is the Chinese company owns the trademark under Chinese law. You, the American company, may own the trademark under American law, but American law doesn't extend to China on trademarks. The Chinese company owns that trademark, and as the owner of the trademark, they can stop your product from leaving China because your product has their trademark on it. And the only real solution to that is to either change what your product says before it leaves China or license it from the Chinese company. Another mistake that we see is where companies call us up and say that a Chinese company with whom they were discussing manufacturing something is now manufacturing the product. Can we stop them? Well, it is possible to stop them in China from doing that, but it becomes a lot easier if the American company had force the Chinese company to sign a non-disclosure agreement before showing the Chinese company the American product. Non-disclosure agreements are actually pretty effective in China. They're very simple to draft. They're not very much different from those in the United States. The third area where we see mistakes when it comes to intellectual property in China, I'll say the third most common area, is 
companies thinking that registering a trademark, registering their patent is enough. Well, the legal side is really only half of it. The other half is the non-legal side, and that involves monitoring what is going on at your factory, monitoring what is going on in China, and possibly engaging in various techniques to avoid or to help prevent Chinese companies from copying your products. One of the simplest techniques is to use two different factories in two different cities to manufacture different parts and then have those two parts shipped to the United States and assembled over here or put those two parts just put together over here so that no one in China ever really gets a good sense of how to manufacture the whole product. Now, doing something like that obviously increases the cost, but many times it can be worth it. The fifth area where we see a lot of problems is joint ventures. And when we see problems in joint ventures, those tend to be the biggest problems of all. American companies have this idea that if I'm going to go to a foreign country, I have to do it as a joint venture. That used to be true to a great extent in China, but it's not true most of the time now. There are certain industries where a foreign company cannot get in without going in as part of a joint venture, but the overwhelming majority of industries do allow foreign companies to go in on their own by forming what's called a wholly foreign-owned entity, or WUFI. The problem with joint ventures is control. Control of a joint venture in China is based on all sorts of different criteria. It's criteria that American companies are not used to. The American company assumes that if they have 51% ownership in a company, that they control it, and that is simply not the case in China. There are all sorts of obscure things that can give Chinese companies control of a joint venture, and Americans are just not terribly well equipped to deal with them. We had a company that called us. They actually owned about 60% of the joint venture, and they had been completely shut out of the joint venture. And the reason they had been shut out was because the Chinese company had the managing director and the corporate seal and there was very little we could do to help them. So be very, very careful about joint ventures. In fact, what we essentially tell our clients is that if there is any way you can do this the particular project without a joint venture, and about 99% of the time there is, then we suggest not doing a joint venture because a lot of times what the American thinks must be done within a joint venture can actually be handled via contract between the U.S. company and the Chinese company. The next item, number six, is China's new labor law. It came into effect on January 1. Many American companies have failed to take account of that. It's actually very easy to get in compliance with China's new labor law. The two most important things to have in place are a written contract, preferably in Chinese, with all of your employees. And I put an emphasis on the word all because it needs to be between your Chinese entity 
and all of your employees, including your foreign employees. It's not just between your China company and your Chinese employees. It ha you need a written contract between your China company and your foreign employees working in China. You also need a written policy manual, and in that written policy manual, you need to be very explicit about the various reasons why you can fire one of your employees, because the general rule is you cannot fire your employees for a reason not listed in your policy manual. And so you have to be very careful about that. The other thing that you need to be aware of is that the term employee is very, very broadly defined in China. So you may think you have an independent contractor relationship with someone, but I'm here to tell you that you probably don't. The seventh area where we see problems is American companies choosing their lawyers in China. Americans have this idea that they should choose their lawyer based on that lawyer's connections in China. Well, the reality is, is very few of the lawyers in China have great government connections. If they had great government connections, they wouldn't be lawyers. They'd be in business. Most of the very good lawyers in China, virtually all of the very good lawyers in China that we deal with are very smart, they've done very well in law school, and they do not have great government connections because they do not come from government families. They were just people who did very well academically. A lawyer in China who is telling you that you should retain him or her based on government connections is probably not the lawyer you want to retain. The other mistake American companies make in dealing with um, Chinese lawyers is to assume that because their Chinese lawyer speaks English, that lawyer really understands what the American company is seeking to achieve in China from a legal perspective. The reality is that there are huge cultural differences between uh, Americans and Chinese, and very few Chinese lawyers understand those differences, no matter how good their English is. And most importantly, very few Chinese lawyers understand the sorts of ethical and legal constraints that American companies have to operate under in China. For instance, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and there are various other requirements that American companies have to fulfill, and Chinese lawyers just have really no way of knowing about that. The other problem that American companies sometimes face with Chinese lawyers is that the ethical rules of the Chinese lawyers are very different from what American companies are used to dealing with in terms of American lawyers. And one of the biggest differences is that of confidentiality. The rules on lawyer confidentiality in China are very different from those in the United States. The rules on confidentiality just really are not nearly as strict over there. Americans need to be aware of that, and this is particularly true with respect to Chinese lawyers revealing what you thought were confidences to the Chinese government. The eighth and final item is an overall view of the law in China. American companies tend to make two mistakes 
and they're really obviously they're really direct opposites of each other. Americans tend to view the law in China as being either everything or nothing. What I mean by that is that there's this misconception that Americans have that there is no law in China, and some American companies base their actions on that. So they'll go over to China, and they won't register. And when we tell them, look, you need to register, they'll tell us, well, I know this company that didn't register. The reality is there is law in China. The enforcement of that law is increasing day by day. And what is true for a Chinese company with respect to the law in China is not necessarily true for a foreign company. So there may be a Chinese company that doesn't pay its taxes, and it's getting away with it. And an American company thinks, well, I don't need to pay my taxes either because I saw the, see all these Chinese companies not paying their taxes. That's just not the way things work in China. The law is much more strictly enforced against foreign companies than against Chinese companies. Yet at the same time, there are certain laws in China where there is virtually no enforcement. And part of the reason is because the laws are so new, no one knows how to enforce them. And so you have to be working with a lawyer who knows which of those laws that is the case for, because certain laws seem to very much confine the operations of certain American companies. But in reality, those laws may be on the book, but they're not being enforced at all. The other thing that American companies must realize about Chinese laws is that they change all the time. A regulation can come out saying A, and then a new regulation can come out two weeks later saying B. And then a new regulation can come out four weeks later saying, we're back to A. I know of no good way to handle that. I don't think there is any good way to handle it other than staying up on the laws that relate to your business. And what makes the laws in China even more difficult to deal with and even more important for American companies to stay up on is that laws can come down in China that are what we lawyers call ex post facto, which means that a law, you've been doing something completely legally. Let's say you bought a building, you paid $2 million for a building for a foreign language school, and you're uh, about to open your school, and then all of a sudden a law comes down saying foreigners cannot run foreign language schools. That law will be enforced, and you will have no remedy for the fact that you just spent $2 million on that building. Or another example, and I believe this actually happened, is that a law came down saying that foreign language schools had to own their buildings. They could no longer rent. Well, if you were renting a building and you had a two-year lease, that poses a real problem. Those are the kinds of things you have to try to stay on top of. And I say try because about all you can do in a situation where you hear about laws coming down is try to adjust your business accordingly. But obviously there's a problem when you hear that something might come down. Um, it's very difficult to know whether you should do a 180 turn based on something that might or might not happen. If anyone listening has any questions, feel free to consult my blog, 
China Law Blog, which is at www.chinalawblog.com, or feel free to email me with any specific questions at firm, F-I-R-M, at harrismore.com, H-A-R-R-I-S-M-O-U-R-E.com. Thank you. Dan Harris of Harris and Moray in Seattle on eight things lawyers must know about China. You've been listening to the LexisNexis International Law Center podcast. Copyright 2008 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, total practice solutions.